0: Good evening, or good afternoon, whatever, I think it's right in the middle of the afternoon and evening. I don't know what to say about a man like John Perkins who's had a very interesting life and done things that most of us won't do in five lifetimes, but I can tell you how I first became acquainted with him. My father bought me a book, it's about 15 years ago, the first edition, called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and I thought, what a killer title. Who would think, figuratively, not literally, a killer title, I want to read this. And I started reading it, and it read like an adventure story, a fiction story, especially with the setup with Claudine, who my dad insisted was not real. (laughs) We'll find out. Um, Anyway, I thought to myself, this man has a very, very interesting life, um, and he's a great storyteller and a great writer. And I just kept reading And I realized that, you know, this is a story of a guy who's a secret agent of capitalism all over the world, doing what he learned to do, doing what he's told. And he was very good at it. Um, He saw how the sausage was made, as we say. Um, You know, the warts and all. He saw how money was made in international investment capitalism. And his life resembles the classic hero's journey from mythology, going back to the ancient Greeks in many ways. John answered the call to adventure as a young man because he was bored, I guess, being in New Hampshire or wherever you were after that. And he really did answer it, and his life is kind of a classic story. Um, When he came out the other side, after all of the ups and downs of the classic hero's journey, he became his own most brutal critic, which is not the normal hero's journey story. The learning and the insight that comes from a hero's journey story is normally what you learn about other people in the world, not about yourself in a negative way necessarily. Sometimes, yes, but not always. But to become your own most brutal critic and to completely refashion yourself as a human being with different concerns, very much the opposite of what you were doing, is a very unusual story. And I was compelled the whole way through. In the middle of it, I thought, I want to be this guy. And then when he started showing how guilty he felt about things, I thought, maybe I don't want to be this guy, but I want to know this guy. And we just met, which is a beautiful thing. Um, I think that he's also, the accumulated experience means that John is a great inspiration for people who maybe think that change from below is not possible anymore. In, a day of, in, a, in an era of oligarchy, billionaire capitalism, Learjets, or sorry, Gulfstreams, no, Learjets, no, they, anyone can afford a Learjet these days. Um... John's an inspiration about what we're capable of doing when we see things that make us feel uncomfortable and we realize that there's a need for change. Um, I'm going to let him tell his story and talk about the details because there's a lot to talk about. But he's a pretty extraordinary person and he's taken his own level of human development to an entirely different level, and I hope you talk about that a bit, in his relationship with spirituality and the environment and people, indigenous people, for example, from whom we can learn things. That we never even thought of learning, given our backgrounds and our values and our education system. So, John, please.
1: Well, thank you, Jonathan. That was a that was a nice introduction. Very unusual. I've never had one quite like that before. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> it's it's so great to be back here. I was here last year and and I just love it here. And, and I, I just to kind of get off the subject, what I'm writing about now is how we need to transform what they call a death economy into a life economy. And a death economy is an economic system that's built on basically destroying itself, burning up its own resources, consuming itself into extinction essentially, which is the kind of economic system we have in the globe today. And there's a lot of other factors involved in the death economy. It's very undemocratic. It's very autocratic. It has men sitting at, usually men sitting at the top of the pyramid. It goes on and on. But one of the big issues is that it's consumed itself into its own destruction, which is exactly what happened here, as I understand it, with the coal mines and the the steel industry. A life economy, on the other hand, turns that around and it regenerates destroyed environments, it cleans up pollution, it recycles, it creates new technologies that move us into an area where we can truly um, live prosperously, sustainably, and our children and grandchildren and all of nature, not just human beings. And that's what's happening here now. We're seeing this transformation. We've seen this place come from uh, a, a steel mill, a coal mine that basically consumed itself into extinction, into a place that honors music and intellectual activities, poetry, dance, love, being together. So it's an incredibly wonderful place that you've created here, um, and I just wanna honor that. Um, So where do we go from here, Jonathan? What would you, what do you you want me to talk about?
0: Well, you know, your fame derives from your original status, self-described status, as an economic hitman. So maybe if you describe what that means, because I've already said the term, people are probably wondering, what's that? I thought a hitman worked for the Mafia. Um,
1: They've all read the book. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So my job, my real title was chief economist at a major U.S. consulting firm, international consulting firm. I had a staff that ranged up as high as 50 people working for me. But... My job really was to identify, our job as my staff, was to identify countries with resources our corporations wanted, like oil, or coal, or lots of human laborers, or big markets, or various things, but often it was oil. And once that country was identified, my job was to go to that country and convince the president or the minister of finance to be, go directly to the high, highest people in the country and convinced them to accept huge loans from the World Bank, or one of its sister organizations. And yet that money never actually went to the country. The country signed off on the debt, and used its resource, let's say oil, as collateral, but they never saw a penny of the money. The money went directly from a bank in Washington, D.C., to perhaps a bank in in Houston, where where, uh, Halliburton was, or uh, San Francisco with Bechtel. So the money would go directly to U.S. corporations to build big infrastructure projects in the country that had signed off on the debt. And these were projects like huge power systems, electric power systems, roads, um, industries, airports, things that ultimately benefited a few wealthy families in those countries, the ones that owned the industries, that owned the commercial establishments, they benefited tremendously. And their families participated in the development process too. So a company like Bechtel would go to a country and and, and I would go first and I let the president know if you if you sign off on this loan, you're gonna hire one of our companies to build this big system. And this company is gonna hire your brother's company that does blaze pipe or has the John Deere franchise. And they're going to pay a lot of money for that. They're going to pay more than what they should pay. There's nothing illegal about doing that. It's basically a bribe, but it's, not, but it's a legal bribe. And so, and, and in the end, you're going to have the use of the electricity, the roads and so forth to help your people. So a few of the wealthy people benefited, but the majority of the population suffered extremely much because uh, money was diverted from education, healthcare, and other social services to pay off the interest on the debt and in the end the country never could pay off the principal and in fact that was a strategy so we would go back to the country and say since you can't pay your debts uh, sell your resource your oil or whatever real cheap to our corporations without any environmental or social regulations or privatize sell off your, your public sector businesses, your, your water and sewage system, your electrical system, whatever, to our investors at a cut-rate price, or let us build a military base on your soil. In this way, really, we were creating an empire, and in, it's an American empire to a certain degree, but really it's become a big corporate empire, because a lot of these corporations like Pechto, I mean like, excuse me, Halliburton, which I use as an example, doesn't even have their headquarters in the United States anymore. It's in Dubai. Uh, But we created this system of of basically enslavement of countries to our will. And I also have to say that that most of the presidents agreed to this because they made a lot of money out of it. And we provided all kinds of fancy reports and econometric studies. My staff did this to to show that the country would benefit. And we did show this so that it's a fact statistically that if you invest the billion dollars or so forth in, in infrastructure, the GDP, the economic measures of the country grows. So we could create these reports that showed that the country was gonna benefit because the, the economy grows. And I believe that at the beginning. That's what business school teaches you. That's what the World Bank teaches you. But as I got into this deeper, and I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer deep in the Amazon rainforest for three years, I'd lived with people on the other side of hydroelectric projects, so I think I helped understand this. I'm doing a talk tomorrow with an Amazonian indigenous shaman, uh, and uh, I've lived with these people. I saw that what was really happening is that the statistics are, are completely skewed in favor of the rich. So, for example, today in the United States, we know that three individuals have as much wealth as half the United States population, the bottom half. Three, three individuals have as much wealth as 50% of the rest of the population. So if those three individuals, are their economy is growing, let's say 4 or 5% a year, and half the country is staying the same or even declining, it'll still look like the economy is growing. At, at two, three percent a year. And exact, that's exactly what's happening in the United States today. Our President Trump is saying, well, the economy is thriving. Yeah, the rich are really thriving, but the majority of the people are not. And I began to see that in these countries, all those statistics were skewed. But before I saw that, I, 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 by the time I saw it, I was kind of trapped in the system myself, and I can get into that more later if we want to. But The other side of this coin is that we would produce these reports. We would tell the president or the finance minister, hey, take these loans and we'll show you and you can show your people how much this is going to benefit your country. And the other side of the coin was basically, so I'm saying to this president, in this hand, I've got a billion dollars or so. And you and your cronies are going to make a lot of money out of this. You're going to benefit. In this hand over here, I've got a gun. And the fact of the matter is, I didn't carry a gun, but I knew behind me were people we call the jackals. And every president of every country today knows about Mossadegh of Iran, Allende of of Chile, uh, Arbenz of, of Guatemala, and more recently, Zelaya of Honduras in 2009. Lumumba of the Congo, Ziem of Vietnam, they know about these heads of states and these are the heads of states that we don't even talk much about the ministers of finance and other people who've either been killed or overthrown in coups because they didn't play the game. And so when you go in and you meet with the president and you say, hey, here's a few billion dollars for you and your family and your kids are going to get a free education in the United States, we're going to give them good scholarships and so on and so forth, here, this is for you, or there's the threat that you too will go the way of Allende in Chile or Mossadegh in Iran. So, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do in that case? Most, most of these presidents um, would take the money. I had two, two clients that had tremendous integrity Jaime Roldos, the democratically elected president of Ecuador, and Omar Torrijos, the head of state of Panama. They didn't take the money. And they really stood behind with their belief systems, and also they—they don't not only for their countries, but they wanted to set an example for the world. And they both died within less than three months of each other in very, very suspect small private plane crashes that I—I I'm, I'm personally am convinced were assassinations. And I expected them to, to something to happen to them because they refused to play this, this game. And so that's really what we economic hitmen did in those days, continues today, but it's getting worse. I wrote a book called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman recently which talks about how things have changed since and now in those days we were generic, we didn't really care whether Halliburton got the job or, 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 or Bechtel got the job as long as we get a piece of the action, my company, and we always did, we, we were managers, we were consultants. Today we, that system still exists, but now every company also has its version of Economic Hitman, whether it's Huawei from China, they have their version too, or Exxon, or Nike, or Amazon. Is it, so we've now got out there, swimming around out there, there's a, there's a lot of them in this country, and, and <laughs> I know. You know, so they're trying to promote their own countries, their own companies' interests. And then there's the guys like me who are just working with the World Bank and so forth to promote, uh, to, to saddle a country with tremendous amounts of debt and fear, so that they'll play our game. So it sounds as
0: if you would have been working for the East India Company had you been born a couple hundred years earlier, at least for a while, and then you would have probably written a book about it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know whether I would have written it. Leather bound. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, my country, the United States, became the United States because it, it rebelled against the East India Company we like to say it was the british government but really the real story behind the story was the east india company which controlled the british government to a large degree king george was a you know a major stockholder in that company and very much at its mercy so that's a really good point jonathan that yeah
0: it seems like a similar model of colonialism but this is your model is more economic than cultural it becomes cultural in a, in a you know, meta sense, because people it, mimicking our institutions. But it's more purely economic. You're not making people open up uh, you know British-style schools. You're not creating a bureaucratic elite that you know, goes to Eton and Oxford and then comes back home. It's different. It's simpler. It's more efficient.
1: Well, and that's an interesting aspect, because this whole system really started in the early 50s when the United States was um, opposing... Iran. Uh, so, so, Mossadegh had been elected, there been a real democratic election, Prime Minister of Iran and he then went against the oil companies, primarily what became BP, the British oil company, and Eisenhower, President of the United States, was, was called in by the British and so forth to, to try to change things. Now, Eisenhower was a ter- was terrified of nuclear war because the Soviets now had nuclear weapons, and they were right there next to Iran. So he was very uh, concerned with doing something. So he had a secretary of state and head of the CIA, the Dulles brothers, John Foster Dulles and... and Alan. Alan Dulles, right. And they were pretty cunning characters. So they came up with this idea, well, instead of, let's not go to war, but let's let's send an agent in to um, corrupt, to change the system, to get rid of Mossadegh. And so a CIA agent named Kermit Roosevelt, who was Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, went in with a few suitcases filled with dollars. Literally. What else? (laughs) Exactly. Literally goes into the country with these suitcases, and he and a few of his his employees from the CIA uh, ended up paying People lots of money to demonstrate against Mossadegh and the police and the armed forces and so forth, and made Mossadegh look, made the world think Mossadegh was unpopular, which he wasn't in Iran. I spent a lot of time in Iran after this, under the Shah, and Mossadegh had been very popular, but he was overthrown and replaced by the Shah. And so the system seemed very, very successful. But the problem with that particular system was that, 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 that Roosevelt was a card carrying CIA agent. If he had been apprehended, it would have been very embarrassing for the U.S. government. So the decision was made to use that system but to hire private consultants like me, who had no connection with the government. So if somebody came after me, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a consultant uh, for a private corporation, nothing to do with the government. But then after the Vietnam War ended, we basically in the United States understood that we couldn't defeat countries like Vietnam. And so, the economic hitman scenario became even more important. If we can't, if our military can't defeat Ho Chi Minh, which we couldn't, it was a little bit like the British couldn't, you know, the Americans could defeat the British, even though the British had a much stronger army. If we can't defeat them militarily, then we need to use economics to do this. And that was very, very successful for a long time, but at one point, the military industries began to get very upset by this because although the whole country was, the United States corporations were benefiting, the, the Raytheons and the, and the, and the, the, the Grummins and the other industries connected with the military were not. And so they were putting pressure on, on President Clinton who didn't really bow to it, but then on Bush, and along comes 9-11. And suddenly there's a huge excuse for us to revamp the military system. So today, in the United States, we've got both the economic hitman system and the old kind of colonial type of military system that's going to places around the world, many places, not just the ones we hear mostly about like Afghanistan, but pretty prevalent in parts of Africa and other places too. We're seeing more and more of this. The threat is there.
0: So is this still an economic game or is it about something else? What do we want? And this is a question people forget to ask powerful actors when they behave a certain way. What do you want? And this is, you know, we can compare it uh, with China and China's outreach. And China's being accused of trying to create a global empire for resource extraction for their domestic market. But as you said publicly, it's very different because they aren't leaving military bases uh, in there, well, they're not building military bases, it's staying there and manning them. Uh, how, is, how do empires differ? Is it, again, economic, military, and what do we want? What do the Chinese
1: want? Resources, and power, and control, and so there's no question that right now the United States is the empire, because if you look at empires, and you, there's a whole list of characteristics, but I think probably the three most important ones are that, that define an empire, is most of the world uses that country's um, uh, currency, the dollar. Mm. It's the basis for the international, international- reserve tr- currency. Right, yeah. And uh, it's, it's the language of business and diplomacy. That's English. And it's the country with the biggest military. And the US military is as big as the next seven combined. You know, it's, it's like seven times what Russia's is, which we think of as our enemy. <laughs> Um, and so, we, we are the empire, and so China's now coming along. It's really interesting because we're not sure exactly what their goals are, but we know that this is a big challenge. I spent a lot of time in Latin America, about three months every year, in Colombia, and Ecuador, and Costa Rica, and Guatemala, and many other countries. And, uh, you know, to, to watch the way China now is, is manipulating these countries, and you know, in, res- in some respects, I think they're doing a, a better job uh, than we did. Uh, and I'll tell you, so. an interesting side here is uh, two years ago, I was speaking at the St. Petersburg, Russia International Economic Forum. President Putin was also speaking there, and Secretary General of the UN, Guterres, or I, I was with some pretty impressive people. And I got to know Putin's, uh, one of his top economic advisors, Sergei Glasiew, well. And then he and I traveled to Kazakhstan together and spoke at another forum there. And Sergei, who's an amazing economist and an amazing intellect, and has written books in English as well as Russian, um, and, and had read my book, he said, you know, China has learned from the mistakes Russia and the United States made. Uh, their approach to the economic hit band thing is, is much more sophisticated than yours was. And and I watched this in places like Costa Rica, where the Chinese have gone in and said, well, we'll build um, your soccer stadium in San Jose, the capital, for free. Here, we're going to give you a soccer stadium. But in exchange, you're going to give all of our Chinese corporations 22 years of tax-free business. Tax-free for 22 years. And the, the Costa Ricans have, have now calculated that in the last five years, They've more than, <laughs> China's more than paid for that uh, for that stadium. Uh, and China's not putting military bases, and nobody let, wants a military base on their soil from a foreign corporation, from a foreign company, a foreign country. Nobody wants that. And the United States and has made Except
0: Poland, apparently.
1: <laughs> well, the United States and, and the Soviet Union or Russia have made big mistakes in that way, you know, and, and, and uh, China's not doing that, at least not yet.
0: Is, is China a new kind of empire that we should aspire to be and that the Russians might aspire to be? Is it a new model that we're learning from?
1: It's, that remains to be seen. Um, still, the Chinese language is not the prevalent language, and the currency is not the prevalent currency, but that could happen very quickly. And it's been, they're working on making that happen. Um, and they don't have a big military presence. So, according to that definition of of empire, they're not there yet, but from an economic standpoint, they're getting there fast, and they are commandeering tremendous amounts of resources in Latin America and Africa especially, and other parts of the world too, but especially on those two continents. When you think about it, it's an interesting question to ask, what's the continent in the world that has the greatest number of natural resources? Anybody? No. No. <laughs> no. Africa, right. Africa has the greatest natural resources of any continent. What's the poorest continent in the world? Africa. Go figure. What does that tell you? Colonialism. And And now, you know, China's working very hard to get those resources, and and also in South America, which has a tremendous number of natural resources, too. So we're seeing this amazing clash, and as a result, the United States is having to back off a little bit. The World Bank is revising its policies, because it's not having to compete with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, and the BRICS Bank, which are Chinese-controlled. And so, the World Bank and, and the economic hitmen are having to back off a little bit. And that's interesting because since 1991, after detente, after the Soviet Union was dissolved, the United States basically had the run of the, the world. And we were the big superpower. Before that, there was a struggle between the Soviets and the United States. And if, if I'm president of Ecuador, or some any other country, and the U.S. economic hitmen get a little too strong, they try to strong on me a little too hard, um, I turn to the Soviet Union. And I may not be interested in going to the Soviet Union, but at least I use them as leverage. And that all went away after 1991 for a number of years. But now China's coming back into the scene, so countries have leverage now.
0: Well, if we're talking about empire and the way countries project power, one thing that I notice as a political scientist who's been studying democracy for a long time is that the three countries we've been talking about, China, Russia, and the US, are development models as societies for exactly no one. No country now wants to mimic the domestic institutions of any of those countries. They're either broken, corrupt, or so authoritarian, in case of China using the surveillance state now in China is at a level we couldn't have even imagined a short time ago. So what does it say to you that these countries are very innovative when they're, uh, especially China, when they're reaching outward and extracting resources, but domestically, the rest of the world, particularly the democratic world, but also the developing world, totally rejects these countries as examples of how to develop their domestic societies, their their domestic political systems, economies, even culturally. There's a real tension between those two things.
1: There is, uh, and I'm not sure where that takes us. Because if you look at if you look at past empires, the the Roman Empire, that kind of process was kind of adopted by many of the countries that it that it conquered. The Spanish it was different. So the Latin Americans really rebelled against the Spanish culture, uh, and the Spanish political system. The U.S. Uh, because of what you mentioned uh, with the East India Company. The U.S. when it was, became a, co- a country, when it, it's constitution, the, the Continental Congress um, made a very strong case that we never want corporations to be powerful in the United States like the East India Company was. And so they passed a number of laws that didn't allow companies to buy or sell each other and in order to get a charter as a corporation in the United States, you had to prove that you were going to serve a public interest. And you had a charter for only 10 years, on average. There were, there were exceptions. After 10 years, you had to go back and prove you'd served a public interest. And you couldn't buy or sell. Your, you couldn't sell yourself to another corporation. You couldn't buy any corporation. You couldn't create monopolies or, oligarch, or, or, or poly, polyopolies or anything else. Um, and that system held for about 100 years, and then in the late 1800s, it all changed and changed primarily because of John D. Rockefeller and the Standard Oil Company, and Rockefeller went to New Jersey and Delaware and said, hey, oil companies can't operate that way. We're a long-term thing. Ten years isn't enough. You've got to give us a char- an unlimited charter, and we've got to be able to buy some of our competitors because that's the only way this whole system can work. And if you change your laws in in New Jersey and Delaware, uh, we'll pay good taxes, and you legislators can pay yourselves better salaries. <laughs> it worked, and so since then we've seen the United States become what I consider—I don't think we're a capitalist country at all—or if we can, we can define capitalism as predatory capitalism. It's a different form of capitalism uh, that, that that where the big guys gobble up the small guys. Capital, capitalism, by definition, is a place where the means of of industry and commerce are not owned by the government, they're owned by private individuals and competition's encouraged under true capitalism. Today we have in the United States a system where competition is basically destroyed to a large degree, Uh, can exist on a small basis but the big corporations gobble up their competitors pretty quickly and although the government doesn't own the corporations, Really, we've turned that on its head where the corporations kind of control the government. And we see in the United States that nobody gets elected to any high office in the country unless they have tremendous money from corporations. And we've got this revolving door where the heads of most of our uh, government agencies come out of the the organizations they're supposed to be watchdogging and I'm gonna probably go back into them. So we've really turned that definition of capitalism on its head and it's, it's not a true form of capitalism by any means. Well
0: one thing that's staring us all in the face of what you just said it seems to me that what changed was a definition of the public interest and it took a Rockefeller and someone who had the power in the organization to create capitalism on a monopoly scale to convince people who held state power, elected officials, that this was in, quote, unquote, the public interest, that seems to me to be yeah. the, actually the causal variable of this as much as anything. And that's a political process. It's a rhetorical and political process that maybe involved you know, pff, new ways of financing political parties to get people to agree to this. Um, you know, it, and ultimately you had the Powell memo, Lewis Powell memo, that's a little bit academic. But it seems to me that that's what happened the public interest as a definition that was common changed.
1: Exactly, the story changed. Perception, and when you think about it, human activity, we we have two two, two realities. Objective reality, this microphone. And then there's perceived reality, the conversation we're having. And all human activities are basically controlled by perception, so there's no there's no Czech Republic, there's no United States, there are no corporations, there's no religion, there's no culture, except as we perceive it, those things, and when enough people accept a profession, uh, accept a a perception, or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality, and exactly what you're saying, that Rockefeller was able to change the perception of public interest, and therefore that changed the reality ever since.
0: This is actually a really important uh, ancillary point that individuals have the power to change history at various times. Bismarck is often credited with changing a bit the laws of international affairs. Certain things didn't apply to Bismarck. Um, and Napoleon, obviously, and a few other people. But Rockefeller is perhaps underappreciated as a person who manipulated our concept of what was in the public interest. You know, So I'm from California, and uh, there's a little story. In the city of Los Angeles, the municipal rail system was ripped up after it had already been taxpayer-supported infrastructure, because what we needed to do was get cars on the road. Because what we needed to do was to sell petroleum and petroleum-based products and cars and boost the car industry, give people work, jobs, that's in the public interest. So why not uh, get rid of the public transportation system that L.A. has barely recovered since then? It has a metro now that covers a bit of the city. But th- these are the kinds of things that happen. And somebody made an argument that convinced them to do that by saying it was in the public interest.
1: Yeah, and, and this whole idea of perception, that when we talk about a, a death economy, which is created by predatory capitalism, we can look at a moment in history when that really, in a way, happened in 1976. So prior to 1976, when I was in business school, I was taught that a good CEO uh, makes a decent rate of return for his investors. Decent rate of return. <laughs> but he also takes good care of the communities where his factories are. You know, he not only pays taxes, imagine that, in the United States big companies don't pay taxes anymore. Um, but he also, the company will, inv- will, will help the school system or the rec- build recreational facilities. And that's what I learned. And and, and also, you pay your employees well, you give them retirement pensions. I think that's fairly common in Europe. But in the United States, uh, we don't have any of that anymore, to a very large degree. But I was taught that in business school pre-1976. In 1976, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics. And Friedman said a lot of interesting things. Some of them are still good and, and relevant. This, uh, he, had some good, he had some very good thoughts. But I think one of the most significant statements was, the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And he went on to say, and, and von Hayek, who preceded him by a couple of years of winning the Nobel Prize, had begun this process. It had been growing for a long time, actually, ever since Rockefeller. It had been growing. Been, there's been this uprise but but when Friedman said it, and he had great following with with Reagan and Thatcher and many others, um, he also said that if we maximize short term profits, all the social and environmental costs will uh, problems will take care of themselves, which as we now know is total b s it just it just isn't True, it's, he was selling predatory capitalism, but it caught on, it was that perception. So how do we move into a life economy? How do we change that? We have changed our perception. And I have to say, if I may, that this is happening. It's why you're all here. You know, it's phenomenal. I think the whole world right now, I think there's a huge consciousness revolution. I think people are waking up everywhere, whether I'm speaking at the St. Petersburg, Russia International Conference, or Latin America, or the United States, Czech Republic. You know, music festivals like this, back in my day when there was Woodstock, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll.
0: And mud. (laughs) And
1: mud. (laughs) I don't see much mud here. I suspect there's some sex and drugs and rock and roll. You know, I know there's rock and roll. That's pretty obvious, but uh, yeah. But in addition, you've got the melting pot. And this is happening around the world at music festivals, uh, you know. It's, it, and everywhere I go, I find that people are talking about these things. They're waking up. There's a real consciousness revolution. There's an awakening to the knowledge that we live on a very, very fragile space station. The Earth. And you can't get off. Elon Musk might get off for a while. A few other people might go to Mars, or the Moon, or someplace, but most of us aren't going to get off, and we don't want to get off. It's a beautiful planet. So we're waking up to the fact that we've got to take care of it, and we've got to create this sustainable economic system, a life economy that is itself a renewable resource. And I find this everywhere across this planet. It's happening in China, it's happening in Russia, it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. The pro- but at the same time, whenever there's a revolution, the people who represent the status quo, the ones on the top of the pyramid put on the brakes, and they try to convince everybody else to leave the revolution, and that's what Donald Trump is doing. And I think that's what Brexit is about, and I think that's what a lot of stuff that's going on all over Europe, and Latin America, and Africa, is we've got the the, the, the people putting on the brakes because they feel an undercurrent of a new consciousness, a new awakening, And it scares the hell out of them. And we, you and I, need to take courage from that and be inspired by it because it means they're afraid we're winning, and we are. And so there's this awakening of consciousness that's going to move us out of this terrible failing system, this death economy that's so unjust, where there's such incredible inequality and where things are totally oriented toward materialism. Well, not totally, because here you've got music, sex tr- sex, and rock and roll. <laughs> I don't know what else is going on, but we're here talking about this. And, and so we're finding that we're really moving into this new idea, and I think this place, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this very facility represents that, an old system that failed, an old plant that's failed, and now has been turned into something that's successful. I love it, I love it, I love what you guys are doing here.
0: Can't wait to get a tour after the <laughs> second talk. You know, okay, we talked about the power of individuals, and you, we talked about a couple things that I think are ideas, right? Two ideas. One of them is that economic growth is normal, natural, permanent, and a necessity. And the other is that firms seek to maximize profits, right? These are basically two points of belief of economists. They're not questioned. You know, is growth do we want growth all the time? And what it requires? And also the firms maximize profits things. Think about it. Okay, you're an economist. I don't want to get too academic, but some of you probably care about economics. Firms don't always seek to maximize profits. If they did, they would never give anyone vacation time. They would fire the person who shirks and they'd hire someone at a lower wage. The only reason They wouldn't,
1: they wouldn't pay their CEOs so much money either.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, absolutely. Firms are run very inefficiently. They don't seek to maximize profit. They seek more or less to maximize resource distribution in a way that suits the interest and needs of people who control those firms while making a sustainable enough profit to maintain their corporate existence. You can quote me on that. <laughs> anyway, the, the, so what I'm saying about maximizing profits is that an economist will say, you know, there's the assumption that an actor is rational, even though behavioral economics shows that we're often not that rational. We assume firms maximize profits because you have to assume that analytically to predict the behavior of firms or individuals. If you don't, you're in an upside-down world of not being able to predict anything. So we go with the assumptions that most accurately mimic reality, right? Is that a fair
1: statement? Well, that's our perception of reality. Our perception of
0: reality. So yeah, how how we understand, how we perceive what firms do, what people do. Um, And I think that idea and the idea that growth is necessarily something that has a, you know, we we have a cult-like need for growth, those two things are ideas that have had an effect on the way economies are organized and globalization has become organized that's had a very, very negative, nasty effect on the quality of life of many people, and also it's skewed income distribution nationally and globally, but I don't think either of those things is acknowledged very often, because economists are the ones who lead the debate, and those are articles of faith among most powerful economists, not just Western, but economists from developing world who almost always study in the
1: West. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I
0: <laughs> mean, you have an We're economic background. Is this ever anything you've discussed with people out on the road and in the, in the Amazon or anywhere that these are crazy ideas that we have to let yep, go of?
1: Absolutely. And tomorrow, as I mentioned, I'll be sharing the stage with a, a shaman from the deep from the Amazon named Manari. And if we look at, at human history, we, we have been what we call human beings for about 200,000 years, give or take a few. And throughout most of that time, as is the case with indigenous people in the Amazon and, and elsewhere today, or that's changing rapidly, but when I first lived there in 1968, it certainly was the case, indigenous people, and, and I think all of our ancestors, created a life economy. Their motivating factor was to leave, to, was to take care of each other. It wasn't self-oriented. It was to take care of each other and to leave to their offspring as good a world or better world than the one they inherited. Don't use up the resources, replenish. And I think that's human nature. It went on for 200,000 years and then beginning, I think, roughly 3,000 years ago, uh, that began to change. And part of it, I th- you know, I'm not an anthropologist, or, but I think part of that was You know, the the development of agriculture, and at the same time the development of warlike tribes that didn't want to bother to farm, but they wanted to take what the farmers were farming. And it goes on and on from there. But I think that if we look at who we are as human beings, we can look back and uh, we can look to most of our history, and we still have examples with the indigenous people, and say that our nature is to produce a better world for our children and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. And today, to understand that that means taking good care of the planet, that our grandchildren will want the rainforest. They will want clean air and water, um, perhaps more than they'll want to go to Mars. Um, and, or, and, and the materialism then becomes this, this crazy concept. The idea of growth, though, we can grow intellectually. Our music can grow, our literature can grow. It doesn't have to be, you know, materialistic growth. We can grow in so many ways and Manari will tell you, and I don't know whether we'll get into this tomorrow or not, but he's, he, the indigenous people in the Amazon, many of the different tribes that I work with will tell you that over the period of time when we've been growing our economies, our materialism, they've been growing their spirituality and it's one of the reasons they now reach out to us to try to help us convince ourselves that we need to create a life economy, which is a lot of what they're doing today. Many of them, guys like Manari are traveling around trying to convince people to take better care of the planet. Uh, so I think this idea of growth, that we can grow in so many different ways, it doesn't have to be materialistically, but that has been the model for at least the last 3,000 years. So we have
0: 15 minutes left exactly, so let's do a Q&A, question and answer session, because I know you all want to take advantage of John being here. And I'm going to take advantage of the first question, which is related to something we talked about a little while ago, is how come in our culture, Western culture, in our education systems, we don't study ethics in a way that compels us to ask, how much is enough? What do we really need to be productive, happy human beings who are able to reach their human potential? We never ask that. We, we're, we receive media images and cultural memes that tell us we need more and more and more to be respected by other people. Keeping up with the Joneses is the metaphor in American culture. How come we don't even ask that question? And in the cultures that you've learned so much from, they don't need to even think to ask it. We're all human beings and we all have needs.
1: What, what differentiates us? If I could answer that question, I, you could probably put me amongst the p- religious leaders of the world. <laughs> we'll take a shot at it. You never know. <laughs> I, I think that at least in the United States, and I can only speak for the education that I've had, um, the we're not educated to do that. The educate we're educated to become cogs in in the business world, uh, industrial cogs of some sort. Basically, it's a slave mentality. You know, you know. People work for big corporations, as, as I did. Uh, we have a lot better lifestyles than the slaves have, what we call the slaves of the past. But we're still part of this cog, we're cogs in the system that, that, that thrives on teaching us not to ask those kind of questions, but to accept that what we all want to do is get better materialistically. So it's interesting because I was hired at this company I work for, Charles T. Main, as as an economist. And I really kind of enjoyed, I've spent a lot of time in Indonesia, three months at a time, and Iran over a period of 10 years. I spent probably a total of a year or so there. And I love that, but in order to make more money and to gain more influence, I had to create a staff. I had to go out and get enough clients that they could afford to hire. I could hire more people. I could create a department. I became chief economist. I had 50 people working for me and I hated it because now all I'm really worried about is who gets the corner office, you know, who gets the window seat and so on. And yet that was, that's the success and that's what we're taught to strive for. That's what business schools teach us. That's what I think, to a large degree, our education system teaches us get, you know, get more and more and more of something. And it's because it's, I mean, that's the only answer I can come up with. And uh, there may be some deeper philosophical aspects to that. But uh, from a business standpoint, from a purely economic standpoint, I think we're driven by this, an education system, at least in the United States, that doesn't ask the questions about ethics like it should.
0: Well, let me say something quickly. I've spent a lot of time in the Czech Republic since 1988 when I first came here, and I've been living in Prague for quite a while, and I've learned something from Czechs. There's an intergenerational change going on a little bit, because the banks are now making money available for people to borrow. But I've never lived anywhere in my life, and I've lived in several places, where people live within their means the way that Czechs do. And I've always found it very, very interesting. I don't know many Czechs who are overleveraged, who live way beyond their means, who own a lot of stuff just to have stuff. It's it's just it's really interesting, and I, I I just don't see it. But people have enough. But you seem to implicitly ask that question to yourselves: How much is enough? And you've probably had that transmitted down to you through the generations. And you know maybe it had to do with communism with the limits of availability of material goods, but it hasn't changed. And I really, the, the, the people have mortgages now here that they used not to have, but I don't see an abuse of the credit system and people living systematically beyond their means in the Czech Republic that I see elsewhere. And it's, I've learned a lot from you <laughs> living here. And, you know, people, I know they, I, I don't know many people anywhere that, who own outright the places they live, except for here. It's almost unthinkable in a lot of places, but I know people, most people I know who actually own the places they live. It's unbelievable. So credit to you for learning, kind of imbibing that lesson organically through your history and through learning and through yeah. the generations.
1: Keep it up. Yeah. Teach the, teach the rest of the world. I have an 11-year-old grandson. Now I know where I'm going to recommend that he goes to college. He, so we have,
0: we have a question over here. So we need a microphone. Does someone have a microphone? Uh, okay. Yeah, wait. She's got a microphone. Good. Be easier.
1: Is it working? Yeah. So first of all, it's nice that your grandson, if he comes study in Czech, it'll be really nice. But I just wanted to say that, yeah, I think that maybe compared to US citizens, we maybe don't spend too much on like material stuff. But I want to say that we, I'm not that knowledgeable on this topic, but I think that we have about one one in every 10 people in Czech Republic is in, say that, in execution. So we have a lot of actually problems with credit and extending Executions loans. Executions is evictions. Evictions, evictions. Yeah, sorry, that's what <laughs> I wanted Executions to is uh, <laughs> <laughs> popravi. It's a bit different, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wanted to say that um, we also have this problem very much in Czech Republic. You're human.
0: So who else? Okay, gentleman in the uh, fluorescent green shirt with the lovely blue scarf. Easy to spot. You know, th- the speaker is not, is there a way to have this, I guess the sound will come toward us, it's kind of hard to hear.
1: Hello, Mr. Perkins. Um, About you, there is written A World of Greed and How to Fix It. So, how would you fix it? Because I think it means the greed we created, like the Euro Atlantic Society. And if we want to fix it, that's my opinion, we have to um, stop to travel, stop to buy things. And on these things, I think it's the basics for our society. Yeah, it's a consciousness change. We really need to have a consciousness change that gets away from this concept of uh, success is maximization, short-term maximization. And I, I do think it's happening. I think the fact that you asked that question uh, tells us. And that every, but probably everybody in this room is asking that question. And around the world, people are asking that question. How do we change the system? And I, I think the, the greatest opponent to change is fear. So there's an expression in the Amazon that you have to touch the jaguar. What, what That which you fear, you mustn't run from it. You've got to go out and touch it. And when you touch it, it gives you its energy. And this is a very important concept in shamanic journeys. You probably hear people all over the world, this plant ayahuasca is becoming more prevalent. And that's one form of journey, but there's many shamanic journeys. And when you take these shamanic journeys, you often, if in the Amazon, if, they, if they're fearful of something, what they see on a shamanic journey, in a vision quest, is a jaguar. And it's terrifying. But they realize that it's telling them they've got to touch some problem. And that's the only way they can get energy from the problem. And I think our jaguar today is a fear of change to a very large degree. I think there's a lot of people like us, probably most of us here, who live pretty decent lives. We're able to come to a, a, a festival like this. And we probably have food on the table every day. And, and we're not sure we want to change, even when we talk about change. We're not sure we really want to change because that's threatening. Then roughly half the world's population doesn't even have the opportunity to think about change. So they, all they can think about is putting the next meal on their table. And then you get these people at the top of the pyramid who they think they got life just as they want it. They're controlling everything. They don't want change. So we fear change. So one of the things I think we have to get get over is, is our fear of change. And, of course, those who want to keep us in the status quo keep telling us we need to be afraid of change. They're a threat to us. The Chinese are a threat, it's them, it's the, they're the problem, they're the problem, and we need to fear them and we need to oppose them, and one way to do that is to keep building up our material success because that allows us to have the power. We've got to get beyond this fear of change or we've got to move into a new consciousness. How can you do it is the real question. How can each of us? And I would say that every one of you out there has passion. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have passion. You've got skills. I don't know what each of your passions and skills are. I have a passion for writing. I love to write. And hopefully I have some skills in it. And so that's what I do. And once in a while I get on a stage like this and speak. But if you're a carpenter and you have a passion for carpentry, then you build houses or whatever with the most sustainable materials you can. And you, you talk about it to your clients. And you tell them, this may be, this, maybe this costs a little bit more, but it's an investment in the future. It's not an expense, it's an investment in the future for your kids. And if you're a teacher, you teach this and you keep bringing it up. So I think part of this is that we've all got to talk a lot more about it. And if you decide you're not going to buy some product, Nike, for example, let's just say, because you don't think they're paying their workers in Indonesia enough money. So you go to another company and you buy their product instead. But that's not enough. You need to send an email and let the other company know why you're buying from them. Encourage them and let Nike know why you didn't buy from them. And send this email out to all your social networking people. Every one of you here has probably got a big circle of social networking people. If you get all your social networking people to go after, to send out to a company, pick any company, every one of you could pick a company, and send out these notices once a week, and say, you know, I love your product. Nike, I love your products. Don't make him a bad guy. I love your products, but I'm not going to buy them until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair salary, or something, it could be any company. I I shouldn't, I don't want to just single out one company. But we all have tremendous power to do that kind of thing. If you think, every one of you can think about a hero. Who's a hero in your life? Mother Teresa, I don't know. Who's a hero in your life? And to know that that hero didn't know they were going to be a hero when they started, it was scary as hell to do whatever they did. They didn't know. Just like you, you're the hero. And every one of us has passion and talents, and if we all put them toward the end of creating an environmentally sustainable, socially just, spiritually fulfilling world, a a life economy, we can go many different routes. I can be a writer, you can be a plumber, you can be an an architect, you can be a, a teacher, you can be whatever you are. Follow that passion, enjoy it, but channel it in toward going to the same goal of creating a life economy. And when we do that, we're gonna get there. And we're gonna be changing the perceptions as we go along. What is success? Who's gonna be on the cover of our magazines? Not the CEO that earns the most money in the future, but the CEO that's driving his or her company toward creating a better world, a life economy. Let's make those our heroes.
0: I'd recommend if you want to explore the concept of the life economy more, check out John's website. JohnPerkins.org, org. not com, org.
1: I'm not, I'm not a commercial establishment. And there's, there's I'm organic, organic. JohnPerkins.organic. How's that? Organic. Orgasmic. Ooh. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> the question one is, what's your opinion on social movements and their involvement in the social economical change, A, and B? Isn't it part of a strategy to focus on individual rights and individual uh, responsibility to divert us from uh, involving in this wider social movements. Thank you, yeah, that was very clear. Well, I love, I think, in general, social movements are extremely important. Now, you know, not all of them are good, but but, so we have to be careful of what we're buying into. But the social movements that are taking us toward what I call a life economy, they're taking us toward a more sustainable system. And yes, I think to, to get away from this, selfish, greedy aspect of it's all for me. Part of the the, the good social movements are ones that are looking at us as a collective, very much the way indigenous people do. They don't work for themselves. If I'm a good hunter, I hunt for the community. Somebody else is a good canoe maker, they make canoes for the community, I hunt for him or her. And she makes canoes for me, and, and we do that. It's, it's this sharing. It's this communal aspect of how do we all work together to create a better world. And there are a lot of good social movements that are doing that, and I encourage people to become involved. There are some social movements that are going in the opposite direction, unfortunately. But, yeah, I, I, we need to come together. Thank you. Good
0: you know, question. the clock just ran out, so I think we're going to have to end it out of respect for the next session. Um, anyway, I'd like to thank John for sharing not just his ideas, but himself and his life work with all of us. And his books are magnificent, entertaining, and well-written. And, you know, you can go to his website and read a, on a lot of the things he mentioned, particularly life economy. I recommend that.
1: Well, go to my website and sign up. Put your email address in the little box, and then you'll get a newsletter once a month, only once a month. But they're, they are brilliant. <laughs> and beautifully written.